This event was recorded live at the 2017 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this latest session of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Magnus Linklater, and I don't think I'm going to introduce my guest. What I'm going to say is that we're going to spend the next hour talking about somebody who's not here, but who you all know extremely well, which is a gentleman called Rebus. And uh, he is back in his stomping ground. I mean, I hope that most of you will have read the last Rebus. Uh, he's back in Edinburgh. He's <laughs> very much in character. Uh, and in a way, Having him back in Edinburgh, you know, we all feel he's in the right place. And Edinburgh, to you, Ian Rankin, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, for you, Ian, um, having him back in Edinburgh must be, you're coming home in a way, you, you get a lot of inspiration from the city itself, don't you? It's, it, it, it is in itself a character in your books. I, I think so. Um, and, and just to do Magnus's job for him, um, thanks to Dixon Minto for sponsoring <laughs> the event. And I hope all your phones are switched off. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. No, I do. I do get a lot of... I'm um, really anyway. badly. He's a man of a certain age, ladies and gentlemen. He's a man of a certain age. Um, this is the book <laughs> festival, isn't it? <laughs> um, no, no, you're right. Absolutely, you're right. And, um, uh, you know, I'd always written from a young age to, to, to explore the world and make sense of the world. And when I arrived in Edinburgh as a student, I did the same thing. I was writing poetry and song lyrics about Edinburgh and also, you know, starting to read. Because at school, at high school in Cowdenbeath, we didn't do much Scottish literature. And when I came to Edinburgh, I didn't really study. I studied English literature and then American literature. I specialised in that. And it was only in my early 20s that I started to read Scottish literature. And it was Stevenson, of course, Jekyll and Hyde, and it was Scott, and it was Muriel Spark, who eventually became a big influence on me, and Justified Sinner. Um, and along at the same time came this extraordinary flowering of, of, of um, contemporary literature, uh, you'd had Michael Vanney, of course, and people like Liz Lockhead, but suddenly along came Lanark. Uh, I think I was an undergraduate when Lanark came along, published by Canongate in Edinburgh. Um, and soon afterwards came Kelman with Bus Conductor Hines, published by Polygon in Edinburgh. Um, and it suddenly felt like you could write about contemporary Scotland, something that I didn't know you could mm -hmm. until that point, because there hadn't been much of it around for me to read. Um, and it was a, a revelation, and I thought, well, I do want to explore this country, this strange, um, complex, small country. And, and Edinburgh, this city that still is a mystery to me in, in, in many ways. Um, parts of its history I'm still uncovering, but even parts of its present. There are bits of the city I still don't know. And I like nothing better when it's not raining than to go for a walk uh, through the streets of bits of the city I've not been to before. Mm. You must know that thing where you stand in Princess Street and you see a bus and on the, on the front of the bus is a, a destination in Edinburgh. You go, I've no idea where that is. <laughs> you know, I mean, Hunter's Tryst, I know. But it's a lot of you go, where the hell is that? Yeah, yeah. You know, I've lived here for half my life. It's not a fictional Edinburgh. It's a very real Edinburgh, isn't it? I mean, you, 
Rebus inhabits an Edinburgh with which he is very f familiar, uh, but it's not a made-up Edinburgh. He goes to real places, real pubs. Well, actually, there's one. Yeah, fiction, no, yeah. There's a there's a great pub in this called the Devil's Dram, and if there isn't a pub in Edinburgh called the Devil's Dram, the Jolly Well <laughs> not yet, should yeah, be, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a great name for a pub. But anyway, what I mean is that, you know, the places are instantly recognisable, but though the characters who inhabit them mm. are um, highly coloured, fictionalised characters larger than life, that allows you to sort of invest the city and the characters with, uh, you know, a, a real sort of strength of character. I think, I mean, the, the city is, I mean, there are, there are real bits and there are fictional bits. I mean, if um um, if I'm writing about a bar or a, a, a place where something terrible is happening or is about to happen, I may decide it's got to be a fictional place because I don't want to disrespect a real area or, or some you know, real people that are living in this real part of town. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the devil's dram doesn't exist. It's on Cowgate. You go, well, yeah, if it was going to be a dodgy pub anywhere <laughs> in central Edinburgh, it's not, not a bad place to put it. Um, it's not actually a bar. It's more of like a nightclub. Um, and, well, yeah. Um, uh, and it's not, of course, not far from the, uh, uh, from the mortuary, uh, which is also in the Cowgate. It's funny, you've got the, kind of the nightclubs and the, and the mortuary in the same street. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just, every time I, go, I, you know, every time I decide I'm going to write a new book, there's just so much material there mm. in terms of real places and, and real incidents. Um, and then what you do is you, there's a conf confection somewhere. So in this book, for example, the murder um, of the socialite that happened in the Caledonian Hotel in 1978 didn't happen. Um, but the Caledonian Hotel was a real hotel at that time. And I did get permission from them to use the real hotel. And if they had said, no, you can't use the Caledonian Hotel, then I would have had a completely fictitious hotel with a name like that That's in that very same location. <laughs> That's really interesting. You have to ask... You don't have to ask. Can we use you to put a murder in? And they say yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know what they said? They said, well, we didn't own it back then. So we're, uh, they said we're, uh, you know, it's, it's, they said the only stipulation, well, a stipulation, the only thing they did say was, look, can you make sure that in the present day it is known as the Waldorf Astoria Caledonian Hotel? <laughs> so the first mention says Waldorf Astoria Caledonian Hotel, known to everybody as the Cali. And after that, it just becomes the Cali again. Um, but we do get that out of the way. Um, and, and well, I used it before in, a, in a, a, a quite a recent book. I had a, a gangster, a kind of gangland figure from England whose daughter had been in a car crash. So he's up here, staying here while his daughter's in hospital. And he stays in the Caledonian Hotel. And they were thrilled at the notion that a gangster might be staying there. <laughs> it's, kind uh, of, it's kind of weird, isn't it? It is. Um, yeah. Do you, we're all a bit worried, I have to say, about Rebus and his state, because for those of you who read this book, he's coughing an awful lot. He's coughing up blood. He has been to hospital, although he's concealing it a wee bit, but he's got a, definitely a shadow on his lung. Do we Which he calls Hank Marvin. <laughs> As you would. Do we, uh, do we fear the worst? Um, well, I mean, I, I apologise, I've told this story before, but it's all my wife's fault. 
and she's not here tonight, she's at the Oristaya, so I can't blame her. For, an, for um, four and a half hours. Four and a half hours at the Oristaya, rather than come and see me, fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she's been saying for years, you know, you've given this guy an easy ride. You know, he's smoking, he's drinking, not eating healthy foods, taking no exercise. Surely in his mid-60s, he would have some health issues. In this book, I thought, okay, this is the one. And so she is a friend uh, who's a GP, and I sat with her and said, what would you expect someone like Rebus to have with the lifestyle they have at this period in their life? And she came up with some really gruesome stuff. I mean, really <laughs> life-limiting, gruesome stuff. But then COPD. Now, one of the nice things about COPD, chronic pulmonary you know, disorder, is that it has the word cop in it. And that immediately, you know, as someone who, I like wordplay, I love wordplay and puzzles and, re I mean, a rebus is a word puzzle, it's like any picture puzzle. So the fact that I've given rebus COPD appealed to me. Um, now, it's something that he's going it, it, to, it's a, it's a memento mori. It's, it's something that's reminding him that he is mortal, um, that he is not a superman, and that, and, and that, you know, and that he can't go on doing the things he did when he was a younger man. So there's that element to it. And I mean, the last two or three books have really been about encroaching mortality um, and Rebus not being able to get into fights anymore mm. and not being able to shoulder open a door of a, a cheap um, apartment block in Leith. Um, he tries kicking it and then he limps for the rest of the book. <laughs> Be you know, because he's not, he's not a superman. You know, he's, 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 he's fallible and he's, and he's fragile. Um, and that's interesting to me. I mean, that's what people often say, what keeps a series fresh when you've been writing for 30 years about the same person. And it's fact, every, every book, when I sit down to think about what is this book going to be, he has changed. Mm -hmm. He has changed from the previous book. He's changed from the guy he was 20 years ago. Um, He's a little bit older, things have happened to his body, things have happened to him psychologically, philosophically. He's a different character. And the same goes for everybody else. Siobhan is different from previous books and Malcolm Fox has changed. Changes have taken place in their lives. And that keeps the series fresh. <coughs> they've changed, <coughs> but they're still there. And we're still interested in how their relationships are going. Now, <coughs> Rebus has this girlfriend called Deborah Quant. <clears throat> I don't find her... You're not I'm a fan. I'm not sure that relationship is going to last. I don't think she's right for him. <laughs> well, now you've come up... You've, you're butting heads with my wife again. Because I've okay. given Rebus many lovely ladies to play with during the years, and Miranda has liked none of them. Um, patience sake, and he th she, she thought he, she was boring, and uh, everybody I've, I've, I've introduced to Rebus, Miranda hasn't liked him. She likes Deborah Quant. Oh, she does? Yes, she does. So I think Deborah might be around for a little while. And they've got this, you know, relationship where they're of a certain age, they're not going to move in together, you know, they've got their own lives, yeah. they've got their own way of doing things, but now and again they'll meet up and have some fun, they'll go out for dinner, or go and yeah. see a film or something. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, come on, he's had a hard life. Yeah. yeah, it's about time he had something. No, no, okay. Right. <coughs> <coughs> I, I mean, for, I I mean, for a long are. time people said it would be Siobhan, <laughs> and I went, oh no, I can't imagine that at all. Never in a million years could he and Siobhan get together. No, but no, but there's always a certain frisson when they're together, isn't there? Well, there is, there is. I mean, they're what? I mean, they're yeah. I mean, they're friends, and doing the jobs that they do has brought them very, very close together. Obviously. I mean, the police, if you're, a, if you're a cop, the police can become your family, your surrogate family, to the detriment of your real family and your real personal relationships. And they've gone through that quite intense experience. But in a kind of father and daughter way, or a, 
you know, right. it's, it's more that than it is when it was ever going to be a physical <coughs> relationship. In fact, one of my favourite scenes in the whole series is where they're sitting in, in a car and Rebus is leaning across to get to the glove box and she flinches thinking he's about to touch her leg. And he's really embarrassed that she would think he would do that. And she's really embarrassed that, he, that <laughs> she has given that away. Um, and it was never going to happen. It never did happen. But that yeah. just that one moment tells you yeah. quite a lot about the pair of them. Anyway, rest assured, this is not Mills and Boone territory, uh, <laughs> but intriguing nevertheless. The other thing I was interested, Rebus has retired, uh, but he's come back as a cold case and uh, he's reviving it. Would, I mean, you, you know an awful lot about the police. Would that be possible, in fact, in, in, the, in the modern Scottish police force for an ex-cop to get involved, or would he... He, would he, in reality, be completely shouldered? Yes, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's, I, mean, I mean, you know, as with all fiction writers, my job is to make it look as though this is feasible. And since Rebus is retired, it's much more difficult for me to inveigle him or for him to inveigle himself into a police investigation, a police yeah. inquiry. Um, but I like that. I like that challenge of saying, OK, how can I do it this time? How can he get past the front desk? Um, and at the moment, he's not been retired too long, so he still knows the people on the front desk, mm. so he can get past. Yeah. Um, but in a book or two's time, that wouldn't be possible, I don't think, because it would be someone new on the desk who doesn't know who this guy is. Yeah. He's a civilian. Um, so there's all of that to take on board. Um, and that is quite, I mean, that is a challenge. The, the, the thing I've got, the, kind of, the, the, the ace I've got in my pocket is the fact that he has all these cold cases, these notes that he has accrued that he keeps in the spare bedroom. Um, and he's fascinated by these cases that he couldn't quite, get a result on um, and so they will take him to they can take him to interesting places but no in the real world um, no but then in the real world you know um, Miss Marple wouldn't be solving crimes and uh, and Sam Spade would be doing divorces he wouldn't be investigating murders necessarily I mean the, the good writer can convince you this stuff could happen I mean, all, I mean, all of fiction is like that. Yeah. We're convincing you. Well, we are, we are convinced. Well, so far, uh, so far. But, but You're doing way, a good job of trying to unconvince people, though, I tell you. <laughs> by the way, ladies and gentlemen, you may have detected, just picked up, just it was uh, thrown away. He, Ian said, in a book or two's time, maybe. Now, can I ask you, does that mean that, is Rebus going to come back? Um... I have just signed a contract uh, for... Um, you heard it here first. Yeah. I have just signed a contract for two more books. And one has to be Rebus. So the next book I write has to be Rebus. And the one after that can be anything I want. Right. Um, so so it, when the festival finishes, I'll, I'll get the thinking cap on. I mean, I've got nothing at the moment. I've not got a title. Um, I've not got a plot. But I'll get the thinking cap on and start writing as, as normal in January. Yeah. Um, and by June, hopefully, touch wood, I'll have another Rebus book, which will come out next autumn. Right, very good. So, and, and, and you've talked about... All I need is a plot, some <laughs> characters. <laughs> and I've got to remember, he's got COPD, he's got a dog, uh, Daryl Christie's in prison, uh, yeah. Well, you've left, at the end of this book, you've left the arch-villain Cafferty back in his empire. So mm. you've got the villain is there, you've got the main character. I think you can think of something. I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very good friend of mine, um, Alan Massey, who you will know, a Scottish novelist, who was a huge help to me in the early days. He was, 
when I was starting to write prose, I was still at university, and they had a writer-in-residence which was funded by the Scottish Arts Council. We'd come in one or two days a week, and you could go in as a student and talk to them and give them work to, for them to critique. And it was nearly always poets, and I wasn't writing poetry at that stage. And then suddenly Alan Massey arrived, and, and very excitingly, he was a fiction writer. So I was giving him my fiction, and he was giving me sort of pointers and tips, and, um, and he was hugely influential in up to and including getting me my first book deal because he introduced me to his editor at Bodley Head, and he was the guy who took the first Rebus novel eventually, when five other publishers turned it down. He took it. Um, Alan Massey doesn't like Cafferty as a character. He reviewed one of the Rebus books a few years ago, quite a few years ago now, in The Scotsman, and he said, I don't like this guy Cafferty. Um, so I did a book with no Cafferty in it. I, did one, one, I forget which one it was, but one of the Rebus novels is... So, um, I, I think he's an interesting character, and I like what he, what he and Rebus can do together. Yeah. Um, um, always kind of button heads, but also men of a certain age who've got this thing going on with mortality and do they still make a difference mm. to the world and do they still have any meaning in the world um, and what does the world mean um, to them? So, yeah, Caffrey, it could be in the next book, but, you know, Alan just emailed me recently and he said, I'm still not convinced about Caffrey. <laughs> Well, that's the great thing about Rebus is, you know, you either like his characters or you don't. You, you can't stay neutral. But I just want to ask you, is, is, you've talked about the development of Rebus's character and how he's going older, etc. How much of you is in Rebus? I mean, he's a curmudgeonly character, isn't he? He doesn't like change. Mm. He doesn't like the modernizer. He hates police Scotland because it's different. And, oh, uh, not just because it's different. We might come back to that. But first, <clears throat> how much of you do you see there? When I've wrote the first book, not much. Not much. Um, he was a, a guy who was going to be around for one book to tell a story. He had to be a certain age because stuff had happened to him that he'd managed to block or forget about. Um, I saw him as being the kind of guy who would have left my school at 15 or 16 and gone off and joined the army or something and then drifted into another job, which was the police in his case. I, we didn't have a lot in common apart from our background, come, growing up in the same village, growing up in the same town. Now, yeah, possibly more. I mean, possibly more. Um, I, I mean, a detective in general, the detective is the novelist and the novelist is the detective. We're, we're exploring the world, trying to make sense of it, trying to come to some conclusions, um, asking big questions of the audience, big moral questions of the audience, um, trying to get a structure, to find a structure. I mean, what the police do is try and get a structure. There's this kind of very messy thing that has happened, mm. and they try to create a structure that will explain it. And that's what novelists do. Um, and the two, I think the two of us are very similar in that way. Curmudgeonly, a little bit. Um, I don't think I'm as much of a curmudgeon as him. I mean, his favourite Christmas would be just going to the pub. Um, I'm very happy to be at home at Christmas watching him up at Christmas Carol with the family. Um, not a film I think would be on his top five, um, but it's definitely my top ten. Uh, but, you know, we're, we've, I don't know, we've both got the same roots. Um, and really, you know, dig down deep enough in me, you would find something of him. I mean, where else does he come from? I didn't grow up with police officers. I didn't know any police officers when I wrote the first book. I got to know them later on, specifically at a book festival event. There was a cop in the audience quite early on in the Rebus series, and he came up to get a book signed afterwards, and he said, you know, you make a lot of mistakes about the police. Because <laughs> I, I didn't know any cops. Uh, and so he became a really good friend, and, and he's now retired, <coughs> long retired. Um, but uh, he, would, he was a great source of information, and he would pass me on to people relevant 
um, to what I wanted to know, needed to know. Yeah. And I've still got this very small network of people who I know who help me with the books, but most of them have retired now. It's getting kind of hard. I need to have new contacts. I need to find some new people. And in fact, I mean, it's great. I mean, I wrote this book in which Rebus has COPD. And someone who works either in the National Health Service or for a charity got in touch via my publisher and said, if Mr. Rankin wants more detailed information about this, you know, we can give him lots of information. Um, so that's wonderful. Yeah. When I decided that I would have an internal affairs cop in the books, Malcolm Fox, someone from internal affairs in Inverness got in touch and said, do you, do you know what I mean? You, if you need anything, I'll help. Yeah. Scott's fantastic. You know, you can't buy that. Well, you can buy them dinner, obviously, <laughs> but, uh, but you can't, you know, it's just lovely when that happens. Exactly. It's is lovely this when the kind happens. of music that Reba This is the like. sexual objects, I believe. Um, okay, what we've got on now is a live gig on at the, at the, uh, the, the, the Spiegel tent, and it's the Edinburgh band of sexual objects, Davy Henderson, who was in the fire engines, and he's supporting a band called the Unthanks, I think, so... <laughs> We might get a bit of this. It's not I your kind of music, is it? Uh, it's not your. I, think we are no, I get the feeling it's not your kind of music. Magnus. but we'll. Let's uh, live with it. We'll Let's survive live with it. it. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll it wouldn't. It wouldn't be Rebus's music. Do, do, it wouldn't well, be. Rebus's. Do you share Rebus's musical? Taste? I mean, up to a certain point. I mean, there are certain bands that we would both listen to. Yeah. But I've always got to be very careful that it is his music, not mine. So I've always got to check, would he really listen to that? And there are certain bands that I like that he definitely wouldn't listen to. But I mean, Rather Be The Devil is an old blues song covered by John Martin on his album Solidaire. We were both fans of John Martin. So that was a kind of shoe-in. I've used the Stones quite a few times for kind of lyrics and titles and themes. I mean, the thing about the title is the title is also the theme of the book, often. So Dogs in the Wild, even Dogs in the Wild, which is a song by a band he probably wouldn't listen to, mm. The Associates, um, Scottish band from the 80s. Um, but the fact that even Dogs in the Wild could do better than this, it was about yeah. kind of almost child abuse or the way that we look after yeah. our kids and wild animals sometimes seem to do it better than humans do, um, was just perfect for the theme of the book. And rather be the devil all the way through, you're thinking, who is the devil in this book? Yeah. And what tempts you to, to the dark side? What tempts you to do devilish things? And, and what stops you? What stops you doing devilish things? Yeah. Which is at the heart of most crime fiction and at the heart of quite a lot of Scottish literature. Yeah from Hogg um, and Stevenson onwards, and Muriel Spark. Well, um, I, I, Ian wasn't going to do this, but I persuaded him to just to read a wee section, because one of the things you know, that we perhaps almost take for granted uh, is uh, Ian's writing, particularly his dialogue. I think it's just brilliant. Uh, it's always the dialogue that people say the things that you wish you would have been brave enough to say, mm -hmm. uh, but never quite are. And uh, so it has a great sort of colour and texture to it. So maybe you would just... Yeah, I will. I'll read it. I mean, I've just I've plucked this out there and I've never read this passage before. Um, it features a guy called Cross Shand who was in Black and Blue. He was a very minor character at the start of Black and Blue. And I loved bringing him back into this book because he kind of shows how the world has changed. He expects Rebus to be the same kind of cop he was in Black and Blue basically shoving him around the interview room. And Rebus says, we can't do that anymore. Police Scotland won't let us do that anymore. <laughs> um, so here's Cross Shand. Cross Shand wasn't a complete idiot, despite what everybody seemed to think. He checked the outside world from his upstairs bedroom, even opening the window so he could peer to left and right. Then another check from behind the downstairs curtains, just in case anyone was stationed on his doorstep. Having assured himself that the coast was clear, he shrugged into his coat, 
stuffed a shopping bag into one pocket and headed out. He kept his collar up and his head down, offering little more than grunts to the few neighbours who greeted him. He was off to the little, where his mission was to stock up for the next few days. He had 26 pounds in cash, which would be more than enough. Tin soup and ravioli, bread, a few beers. Salted peanuts as a treat, maybe. Not the big packets. He always seemed to finish those at one sitting. Felt queasy after. And no wine. These days it furred his brain as well as his tongue. Yet he stayed sharp. So just the beers to complement the tablets stashed away at home. The tablets had come from a pal, happy pills, doled out for depression. They got him nicely buzzing, washed down with a couple of beers. Buzz, buzz, he said to himself as he entered the store. He'd be in and out in five minutes, knew the layout like the back of his hand, unless they'd moved stuff around. They did that sometimes. He'd complained once at the checkout. We call it a refresh, he'd been told. I call it messing with my head, he'd retorted. But then the manager had come over and asked if there was a problem. So that had been that. This morning was fine though, everything in its right place, five minutes in and out like a pro. Craw was turning from a shelf when he bumped into the man. Didn't he see you there? He apologised. Problem with getting to my age, the man replied genially. You mostly become invisible. He was smiling, his hands empty, no basket, no shopping. How you doing, Craw? Do I know you? Shand looked around, but security was nowhere. You might know the name. Cafferty. Shand's face couldn't help registering surprise. Mr. Cafferty, he stuttered. So you do know me then? The smile broadened. I've heard plenty about you. And I've been hearing about you, Craw. Oh? Darrell Christie used to be someone I considered a friend. Well, maybe not a friend exactly, but someone I could do business with. That all changed, of course. Darrell started stepping on a lot of people's toes. Mine more energetically than most, if you take my meaning. Cafferty waited, but Shant had nothing to say. He gestured towards Shant's basket. Nearly done there. Aye, nearly. Maybe we could go back to yours and talk a bit. Talk? There's nothing to worry about, Craw. Whoever thumped Darrell maybe thought they were doing me a favour. I have to admit I almost wish I'd had a ringside seat. If it was you, well, I just want to shake your hand. Shand looked down. Cafferty had extended a hand wrapped in a black leather glove. When he reached out his own, Cafferty clamped it so hard, Shand couldn't help but wince. The pressure stayed on as Cafferty spoke. <laughs> but if it wasn't you, Craw, then I need to know the who and the why. Because secret benefactors make me almost as nervous as out-and-out scumbags. So we'll go back to yours, have a cup of tea and a chat. Cafferty reached past Shand with his free hand and grabbed a packet of biscuits. My treat. <laughs> it was me that hit him. Shan blurted out. I've been charged and everything. Cafferty released his grip. Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. Could be you're covering for somebody or you heard something you shouldn't. I watched you on your way here, Craw. You're almost as invisible as me. Means people don't even notice you when you're practically under their nose. He wrinkled his face. Though the whiff coming off you might offer them a clue. <laughs> There's no hot water. No been paying your gas bill, Craw. Cafferty dug in his pocket, lifted out a roll of banknotes. Might be able to help you there. Let's go have that chat, eh? Somewhere a bit more private than here. <laughs> <clears throat> and 
in the in, in the first draft, it was an Audi, um, and I, I do the first draft really quickly, and I put question marks in for stuff to be researched later on. And after I did the first draft, I then went to um, Craig Miller, and it's a it's a it's a little. Um, and in the first, there's a kind of security guard comes over, and I looked around. There is no security guard in the little in uh, Craig Miller. You know what little is, right? It's, sort of, it's a it's a it's a supermarket chain that. Uh, they do good special offers sometimes. And um, <laughs> I just hate this point scoring. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I went there and then actually did we walk around and sort of just checked out that that was the kind of place that Craw would go and, you know, what, what was there somebody that tells, was a security guard on the door, was there a manager around, what kind of stuff was there? Um, and I do all that between the first and second draft, which speeds up the, the, the writing process quite a yeah, lot. Yeah, but there's a, I mean, that sums up, you know, this wonderful air of, menace in that in that scene it absolutely perfectly captures so much of this and <clears throat> and uh, when you're writing a passage like that I mean it just almost comes out perfectly formed but is that the product of many days refining rewriting or does it just go once it's in your head does it just go into the typewriter, not a typewriter. Typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> the quill pen, the ink stand. Yeah, the amanuensis. No, it's um, it's a hard night. It's like you thought it was going to be an easy gig. <laughs> yes, you thought it was an easy, this is an easy gig. It's Ian Rankin. Uh, um, no, it, it's a bit of everything actually. I mean, sometimes the writing is very easy, very fluid. You, you know what the character is going to say before they say it. Other times you're really, really working hard at it. You know, the secret of good dialogue is having read lots of good dialogue. You know, having read a lot of great people who do dialogue. And I mean, a lot of crime writers, if you interview them or if you talk to them, will mention people like Elmore Leonard yeah. as being just so brilliant. I mean, you can do a whole book of dialogue, but the di with no he said, she <coughs> said, and I mean, very little, to t but the, everything is there yeah. in the way they say it, the rhythm <coughs> of how they say it, the words they use yeah. um, tells you all about the character. Um, and, and also, having written a lot of books, you eventually start to trust the reader. Mm. When you're young, in the early days, I used, to put, I used to make, oh, will the reader know what I mean here? I'll put in, he said, energetically. Or he said, growling, or, you know, with a, with a growl in his voice. You go, no, just leave it fairly, yeah. you know, I mean, we know what, what's going on here. We know, these two, we know one's scared and one's not. There's a power play going on here, but we know it right from the get-go, so we don't need to have too many pointers. And that means this, that it can flow without you having to be told what you're supposed to feel about this as a reader. Um, but it's trusting the reader. Trusting the reader is, is a, a really crucial point. A lot of young readers, put, uh, young, write, young writers at the start of the career put in far too much information. Mm. And then you suddenly realize you don't need that. <coughs> there's a, I mean, there's a passage in one of William McIlvany's books, uh, which is very, a Laidlaw book, which mm. is very, very similar to that. I mean, he was a great hero of yours, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was a great hero to a lot of Scottish crime writers. And we were kind of thrilled that he got a second life, a second wind, when, I mean, he was at this very, this very festival and he'd, he'd said something about Laidlaw books being out of print, I think. And someone from Canongate was in the audience <coughs> and eventually the books were brought back into print. Um, and then he started getting invited to crime fiction festivals and had these huge, you know, audiences. And he just was blown away. Yeah. Um, and, and it was lovely to see that, that it was lovely to see him see that his books hadn't been forgotten about. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, if you talk to Val McDermott or me or a bunch of other Scottish crime writers, we'll always cite him. 
it's something that was very important early on. In fact, I've told the story before, I apologise, but at this very festival, around about 85, must have been 85, um, he was here, and I went up to him with a copy of... It actually wasn't a Laidlaw book, I think it was Doherty, but it was one of his novels, and said, I'm writing a book that's a bit like Laidlaw, but set in Edinburgh. Uh, will you sign this for me? And he signed it, Good Luck with the Edinburgh Laidlaw. <laughs> and it's lovely. It's just a wee tatty paperback, because that was all I could yeah. afford at that time, was tatty paperbacks. Um, but he signed it, Good Luck with the Edinburgh Laidlaw. Yeah. And, uh, and he was lovely. I remember when Black and Blue came out, and I, I wasn't a big name when Black and Blue came out. And I did an event at John Smith's bookshop in Glasgow. There were no, I mean, they weren't expecting many folks. There were no chairs. It was just people sitting on the floor. And, you know, 10 minutes in, in walks Michael Vanny and sits on the floor. Because um, we'd met a couple of times by then. Yeah. Um, but just to kind of show support for a Scottish writer. Yeah. I just thought that was fantastic. And he was a gentleman, as you well know. He was a gentleman and, and a, a dashing gentleman as well. Dashing, yes. And a fantastic prose writer. And a poet. And a poet. Great journalist, great poet. <clears throat> he could do everything. Um, many of us are blessed with only one thing we can do. Oh, over and over again. Over and over again. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, Marco Vanni was a great influence. And that way of just writing that kind of clean, precise prose about a side of, Edin a side of Scotland that wasn't much written about at that time um, was, was, I think, important to a lot of writers. Yeah. Now, you had a great sort of um, festival, didn't you, earlier this year, a kind of rebus... It was a Rebus Fest. It was a Rebus Fest. Yeah. And people came from all over the world, and do you talked about Rebus. And also, there's an exhibition, isn't there, in mm. the Writers' Museum, which has various memorabilia, things like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 it was just a weekend, and it was absolutely lovely. People did come from far and wide, and we had live music, and we had talks with cops retired and serving, and there were walking tours, whiskey tastings, a pub quiz, um, a film show, all kinds of great things. But this exhibition, which opened in June, is on till, I think, January at the Writers' Museum. And, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, this museum is dedicated to Burns, Scott and Stevenson. And it's amazing to walk in and the first thing you see some Rebus stuff. And it was, about, it was about knots and crosses. It was about the first novel, being 30 years since the first novel. So a lot of it is a, is a tale of failure. Um, so there's my, you know, my, all the rejection letters. Um, and a letter from my agent at the time saying, look, I sent knots and crosses to these six publishers. Here are the five who've turned it down so far. And in fact, I think it was a sixth, but she'd, she'd tipexed it out. If you look very closely underneath the tipex, which you can if you hold it up to the light. <laughs> of course I did that. Uh, it's, it's Canongate. Stephanie Wolf Murray at Canongate oh, turned dear, it down. The saintly Canongate. Yeah, turned it down. Um, I think they were the only Scottish publisher it was sent to, and it was all these other big names in London. But anyway, but the sixth publisher, who or the seventh, if you include Canongate, it was sent to his bodily head uh, in London, and Ewan Cameron, Alan Massey's editor, um, took it on. Yeah. Um, but, you know, five... If, if he'd turned it down, I don't think it would have been sent anywhere else. It would have gone in the bottom drawer, mm. and I would have tried again with something different, yeah. and I wouldn't have become a crime writer, yeah. necessarily. Yeah. So it was just that one little lucky throw of the dice. Yeah. But also, and they've not got it there just now, but I think they're going to refresh the... Um, exhibition because I gave them too much stuff um, and they're going to put in, they've got the manuscript of Knots and Crosses, you'll see uh, how bad a typist I was, but they've um, and it was typing back in those days uh, <laughs> but they've, they've, they've also got, they're not, it's not on display just now, but they've got my first contract, which says I was going to get played, paid the princely sum of £1,500 in 1987 for this book. What they've also got is a letter from um, my agent saying, oh there's a producer very interested in doing it on TV if it gets made for TV, you'll get £25,000. Mm. 
The only problem with that was they're going to relocate it to London and Rebus is going to be played by Leslie Grantham. <laughs> Dirty Den in EastEnders. It was his production company. And I was thrilled. I was £25,000. I was a postgraduate student. I just thought this was remarkable. But he, he didn't do it. Uh. But, but, but again, if he had done it, that would have been the end of the Rebus series as it, well. It would, but you would have gone along with that, would you? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sort of faintly shocked by that. <laughs> Man alive. Just a chance to say to my dad, look, dad, look at that money. <laughs> you know, I mean, just... And then, in any second, uh, the fireworks. Yeah. Um, it's nine o'clock, the tattoo zone, as we all know. Yeah. Um, no, honestly, I would have gone along with that because I want to be a writer. I want to be a full-time writer. I didn't want to be, and this sounds really snobby in a way, or reverse snobbism, I don't know what it is, but I'd met a few writers by this stage, but none of them could make a living from writing. They were poets and, and they were kind of working in libraries and working in bookshops and teaching and all kinds of things. I want to be a full-time writer, and anything that would let me achieve that goal, I was going to grab with both hands. How important is a the relationship between the publisher and the writer? I mean, did they shape Rebus to uh, any extent? Did they, did they uh, did you have a good editor, for instance? Well, I mean, you and Cameron, bless him, I think probably the best thing he ever did was after the first Rebus novel came out, it wasn't successful at all, uh, I went and wrote a, a Licari-esque spy novel, I thought, called we uh, Watchmen. Um, it was based basically on the human factor. Graham Greene's a human factor. I'm going to be a spy novelist. Then I did a kind of techno thriller called Westwind, which was just rubbish. Um, thinking I was going to be a great thriller writer. And these books were both, you know, sold a few hundred copies, uh, if they were lucky. And then Ewan said to me, look, this isn't really working. Whatever happened to that guy, Rebus? And I said, what, you think I should do another one? He went, yeah. He said, I liked him. I said, I liked him as well. He said, we'll do another one. So I thought, oh, so you can write about the same character more than once. Mm. Um, so... I thought, yeah, okay, and I did hide and seek, and, and then I moved to I'd moved to London by that stage, so I thought it'd be really fun to bring Rebus to London because he would hate it. So that was book three, and by then he was kind of he'd, he'd drilled a hole in my head, and he'd got in there, and he wasn't going to come out again. Um, so that was what Ewan did; it was useful. And Ewan went from <coughs> Bodley Head to a little company called Barry and Jenkins, took me with him. Then he got bought up by Century Hutchinson, a really big publisher, and I went with him again. Then he retired. And the head of Century Hutchinson got kicked out and he set up Orion and I went with him to Orion and I've been there for over 20 years now. Yeah. So for most of Rebus's career, he's <laughs> been with the same publisher. And I've had a succession of great editors mm. um, who haven't interfered too much. I mean, they do try and interfere. And back in the early days, I would, I would allow them to. The, one of the reasons why Westwind, I don't think, is a good book is because I, I listened to the editor too much and right. kept changing it and changing it and changing it to be her book, not my book. Yeah. Um, and it turned out, you know, by the time I'd done that and done that, because it started, it was a comedy at first, and she made it a serious thriller. And I, the book she wanted to read, mm. not the book I wanted to write. Um, and I wouldn't do that now. In fact, I, you know, I'm very resistant to being edited now. My wife edits me. So Miranda looks at the book before it's published. No, she reads the second draft. Nobody sees the first draft. Miranda sees the second draft, and she says things like, you've got that wrong. I don't understand that. She's boring. That wouldn't work. That's an information dump. So I just go through it and I take all of that on board and then it goes to the editor. And when the editor in London says, I've got a few comments, I go, well, wait a minute, pal, this has been edited. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? 
I mean, <laughs> let me stop you. You're making it a different book. You're not making it a better book. My wife's made it a better book. Let's just stop there. Very good. That's a great tribute to the wife. Uh, the wife as editor. Actually, I'm familiar with Yes, that of course you are. Anyway, um, the, uh, what I was uh, just uh, wondering, when you talk about Rebus drilling a hole in your head and being inside your head, when you got to the point of shuffling him off and deciding, right, that's him, he's come, he's retired, he's come to the end of a... He's not going to be a character mm. any longer. What was the process whereby you realised that that was a mistake? Or was it that you just couldn't live without him? It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a mistake. I mean, it was a natural progression. He reached 60 and that was retirement age, so he had to go. And I spent five years happily writing about other characters and doing other things. But I got an idea for a cold case novel, a novel about a cold case. And it was a unit in Edinburgh, staffed by retired cops, retired detectives. I thought, OK, what do I do? Do I invent a retired detective? I've already got one. And also, it just seemed to me it's the sort of thing Rebus would do. He would not go gentle into that good night. He would have applied to join the Scottish Crime Review Unit, um, Serious Crime Review Unit. Um, so I thought, well, this is perfect. I was terrified, because I thought, after five years, will his voice still be there? Can I still see the world through his eyes? Mm -hmm. um, and is anybody still interested? So, I, you know, it was the first page of that uh, comeback book was terrifying. And, um, but quite quickly, his voice, you know, it was as though I just unlocked his cell and he came back out again. He'd been, he'd been living in my head all that time. I just wasn't aware of it. And his voice was still there. I could still see the world through his eyes. And he was still a very useful character to yeah. me. So it was... But again, I've, still, I've got that same problem again. Now he's retired. You go, well, how, how, how can you keep making readers believe this guy can still be a functioning detective, in inverted commas, mm. in his mid to late 60s, where, where the police are going to say, look, you, know, you can't interfere in this case. You're a civilian. Mm. Go away and have some fun. Move to Marbella. Mm. Be an Uber driver. <laughs> you know, whatever. I mean, all the retired cops I know in Edinburgh are Uber drivers now. Um, or, or they run B&Bs in Marbella or something. By the way, Rebus would hate Uber drivers, wouldn't he? I, oh, it's cheap. I don't know. Oh, wouldn't he? I, I thought he really did. He, he liked think? sort of traditional thing. He liked black, black cab cabs. And all he probably would like a black cab, but he, would, he'd, he also likes a bargain. Oh, yes, I see. I don't know. Yeah, okay. um, I, you know what? He wouldn't take cabs. He drives everywhere. Um, he's still got his police sign that he can put on the dashboard. Right. He kept that one. He, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't stupid. He didn't give that back when he retired. <laughs> so he still puts that on the dashboard. Um, and hopes so he so won't in get a fact, ticket. there was something quite natural about him coming back. It wasn't like Conan Doyle who, who it, sort of yeah, gave in to really the public. Yeah, on, yeah. Sherlock Holmes should come back. I know. I think they kind of waved a big check in his face and he was yeah. fed up with the public saying whatever happened to Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. It wasn't like that. And he had the more, di more difficult challenge that his guy had actually he died. He did, yes. <laughs> died. <laughs> Uh -huh, from my next <laughs> trick. Um, yeah, but I mean, it does, you know, it throws into sharp relief the fact that there can own, there is a limited life. There's a limited yeah. life to this series. I just don't quite know where it ends and how I end it. Yeah. But it has to end at some point. Well, we all have to start read up on COPD and, and find out what the, what the prognosis is. It's very, very worrying for Reaver's followers. I hate the, the coughing and the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The blood and all the rest of it. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sure that you will have questions for Ian about uh, Rebus and about his prospects and 
either about this book or the next. So if you do have any questions, will you please stick your hands up, wait for the microphone, and there's one already. Uh, Second row. If there are any, there's one over there as well. So carry on. Hi, thank you for a great evening. Um, I've got two questions. The first one is that in Fife, rumours abound that he will eventually retire to number 13, Ian Rankin Crescent in Carden Den. <laughs> the second question is, I wondered if you'd be willing to expand on your letter recently published in the Times? Uh, Thank you. Um, there is, no, uh, there is no Ian Rankin Crescent, Ian Rankin Court. Um, no, I, I know that because I was there. I was there yesterday, day before yesterday. Um, I was filming for the one show about the street where you lived, and so I went to Craigmead Terrace where I was kind of brought up, and I went. We went to Ian Rankin Court as part of the filming process. Um, why number thirteen? Oh, that's interesting. Um, no, he wouldn't. He would definitely not retire back to Carden Den. Jeez, oh, um, <laughs> too many ghosts back there for him. I, I fear. Uh, the letter in the Times is funny. I don't know if anybody saw this, but it was just. Howard Jacobson had a go at literacy um, and how the internet was going to kill literacy. And I just said to the Times, I said, well, you know, um, I've only got one word for this. And it was just a kind of sad face emoji. Um, <laughs> now, the lovely thing about that is that the Times had to print a sad face emoji <laughs> on our letters page. And also it was in colour. And someone pointed out, they think that's the first time there's been colour on the letters page in the Times. So that's a first, eh? Double first. I mean, a double first. I've never got a double first before in my life. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I mean, I mean, we've had this argument. We've, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when we had this argument with Slade. Slade were a popular music group in the early 70s. Uh, and <laughs> they, they, they misspelt the, the titles of their songs. They would, you know, Cuz would be C-U-Z or something. And, and everybody said, oh, my God, this is terrible for literacy. People, kids aren't going to be able to spell because of Slade. And um, we, we just, you know, this keeps coming back again and again. I mean, narrative is always going to be there. Um, young people are using narrative more widely now than ever before. And, and language, in its widest sense, is malleable and, and isn't fixed in any shape or, or form. And there'll be new ways of telling stories or communicating information. Um, and I don't think that, it, that the internet spells the death of literacy. Um, I mean, the way we tell stories and the way we communicate might change subtly, I don't know. We, we don't write down the way we wrote things down four or five hundred years ago, we write them in a different way. So language has always been changing, English language has always been changing, the written word has always been changing. It's part of an ongoing organic process, so I'm quite relaxed about it, in a way that Howard, um, bless him, doesn't seem to be. No. Over there. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced uh, Rebus is a, a dog owner. Uh, does that come from, I mean, do you have a family pet or um, how does that arise? Uh, I've never had a dog, never had a dog. Uh, no, it was just even dogs in the wild. I thought, oh, there must be a dog in this book somewhere, surely. <laughs> and so uh, I introduced this, this um, stray dog and then Rebus takes it on and tries to palm it off on various people who, are, who, won't, who don't want it or won't take it. And actually, I was 100 pages into the first draft of this and I suddenly went, oh, Christ, he's got a dog. I'd, I'd completely forgotten about Brillo. Now, you'll know the nickname Brillo has a kind of double-edged kind of... Indeed, yeah, it's, uh, indeed. A reference, um, by the way, to a certain former... Uh, editor, manager, managing um, director editor of the Scotsman. Andrew yeah. Neil. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, no comment, well. obviously, no comment on that. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Do I believe him as a dog owner? I believe him. You know what? It just, it's a slightly different side of his personality. You go, he's just the kind of guy who would say, you know, as a stray dog. I'll, I'll give it to somebody, and then nobody wants it, and he thinks, well, I can't just chuck it back on the street again. So he's suddenly saddled with it. 
and, and their relationship is quite interesting. It gets them out of the house. It gets them out of the house, you know. And um, yeah, well, what's nice is that Brillo actually his character is rather similar. Rather to similar Rebus. to Rebus's, yeah. They're kind of <laughs> they're quite bristly yes. in their own ways. It's true. It's true. Uh, now there's a question right up at the back there somewhere. Ian, this isn't a question. It's just an expression of thanks. As a relative new reader to Rebus. And I'm starting right at the beginning, and I'm on the sixth or seventh book, Let It Bleed. I cannot tell you the utter joy of being able to pick up that book, follow the character, come back to it again, and it's just good. And even if you decide to uh, kill him off in the next book, Ooh. I shall enjoy every one of them. So thank you very much. Uh, thanks, man. Thanks. <laughs> There's a question over there. It's nice to hear you've had a, a very good relationship with your publishers uh, over the years. But given the new dynamic uh, in terms of e-publishing, is that something that uh, you think that might be the way for you going forward? E-publishing? I mean, probably not for me because I'm a bit old fuddy-duddy now. I'm a bit of old world, you know. Um, uh, but it, it has revolutionised uh, the way we get novels and narrative into people's hands or into their heads. Um, I know a lot of young writers, writers at the start of their careers now, who are kind of bypassing the traditional publishing route. It's not easy um, because you, you can sell your book to Amazon, no problem, and they'll put it on there as an e-book and they'll, they'll sell it. But how do you get an audience? How do you build up um, an audience? Um, and there are, there are ways and means, but you know, as with traditional publishing, there's always, there's always an element of luck involved. Um, one of my favourite stories is, a, is a, a young writer who she started off um, marketing her own books. The thing about being a writer who's e-publishing is you spend as much time marketing your own books as you do writing them um, because you've got nobody else doing it for you. But she, start, she wrote these crime novels and she marketed them as erotic crime fiction. <laughs> <laughs> and the first one was free, second one was a quid, third one was two quid, you know? And uh, I think it was the word erotic that did it. And, um, and suddenly she found herself with hundreds of thousands of people reading her books. Very unsuitable. And she's, and she's now got traditional. The thing is, that e people who do e-books all want a traditional publishing deal, or most of them seem to want a traditional. They want to, a physical tactile thing that they can give to people and they can have on their shelf. They want, I mean, the book still persists in our imagination as the ultimate expression of, of storytelling at the moment. Um, so I think there is room for e-publishing. But how do you get noticed in this huge morass of other stuff that's out there? I've no idea, except with a bit of luck and an awful lot of sweat. I didn't see whether there was somebody up yeah. there. Yeah. Ian? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you touched upon how Rebus's character and Malcolm Fox develop as the books go forward and uh, in, in terms of their character and what's happening around them and such like. Could you just expand a little right back at the start, before it was actually published, as to how you built, developed in your own head the character that you wanted to Rebus, Rebus to start with? I mean, I, you know, you're asking, it's a big ask because it was so long ago. I mean, luckily I kept diaries, page a day diaries. And I do, you know, I've got diaries of the time of how, when I was writing the book. Um, I, you know, I, I just made it up as I went along. I mean, I did the same stuff I did in my, my bedroom when I was a kid. I just, I just wrote adventures down on paper. 
and hoped it, somebody would want to read it someday. And I didn't really know this guy Rebus at all for a few books. Certainly not in the first book, I didn't know him at all. He was just a means of telling the story. He was somebody who of necessity needed to be there. There needed to be a hero and, and, and he was going to be a cop. Um, and, but no, I had no idea I was going to write about if I If I thought I was going to write about him again, I wouldn't have given him quite as convoluted a backstory. You know, his brother's a hypnotist who's also a drug dealer. His father was a stage hypnotist. Uh, he's been in the SAS. He's scared of flying, etc., etc. There's an awful lot of backstory in that book that could have been teased out or that maybe made it difficult in future books. I've got to, I've, that's all got to be in my head now. Got to remember, Rebus is afraid of flying. Um, I got to remember his brother was a drug dealer. Um, then I've got to remember, is he alive or dead? Um, <laughs> I think he's dead. I can't remember. Um, so, I mean, I really didn't have a... I, I was 20... What was I? 25 when I wrote the first one and still a student. I, was, I didn't leave uni until I was 26. Um, and no notion that I was going to be a full-time... That I could ever be a full-time writer. I thought I was going to go on to be a professor. I thought I was going to finish my PhD, get a doctorate, and immediately get a job at Edinburgh University teaching. And we'd be writing in my spare time but would be a full-time lecturer and then professor. And it's taken me from then, 1984-85, until last year, when the University of East Anglia gave me a professorship. <laughs> That's how long it took me to actually get, to get there. And they gave me a professorship in creative writing uh, uh, last autumn. And, uh, and Christ, it's hard work. I don't, I don't, you can't teach creative writing. You, you, you really can't. I mean, I said that the first time I met the students, I said, look, I can't teach you, I can't teach you how to do this stuff. You can either do it or you can't. I can help you, and I can maybe, you know, we can, we can talk about ways that you can improve your craft or you can think about different ways of looking at the world or looking at structure and everything else. But the thing I really enjoyed about that was when I did one-on-one -on -one tutorials with them. And I would always say at the end of it, look, whatever else happens, you're in, you're in an, a, 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 an academic environment here. The trouble with that is you tend to treat this as an academic subject try and have some fun. Mm. Because the reason we all become writers is that it was a fun thing to do when we were young, usually. You know, it was a fun hobby. Yeah. You know, we're, I mean, kid, we're kids. We're kids who just don't grow up. We're writing about our imaginary friends, having imaginary adventures that come from inside our heads. We all did it. We all did it when we were young. Um, and I said, try and have some fun. Because the one thing about academia is you'll, you'll forget that. You'll forget that aspect of the process and it will become a process. Did any of them emerge as writers from that? Uh, so far, I mean, a lot of them have got deals. Yeah. Uh, I mean, agents and publishers are always sniffing around East Anglia because the only reason I took this on, by the way, is because it was the first student was Ian McEwan <laughs> at the UEA. The UEA, University of East Anglia Creative Writing School, was the first one in the UK, and the first student they ever got was Ian McEwan. They got Kazuo Shiguri as well and various others, but he was the first. And I interviewed him on his very stage years ago. And we discussed this, and he said, it was brilliant, he said, he said, yeah, my tutor was Malcolm Bradbury. And I'd give him a piece of work, uh, I'd, I'd meet him next week in a pub, and he would say, yeah, that's good, keep going. And we'd drink a couple of pints, and he'd go away. <laughs> and he was the only student they had that first year. I just thought that was brilliant. In fact, that's not a bad way to do it. Uh, keep going. That's okay. And that's all you need is that, can he somebody to say, yeah, that's good, keep going. Now, we've got to wind up uh, because... I've got we books. started late. No, actually, yeah, we, we started late. So we no, we're f yeah. But I'll tell you what, I've got, there is a question there. Just be, there's one question there. But just, I've got an idea, by the way. I've just had All an right. idea for your, for Rebus next time around. 
because it's it's going to be we're going to be into post Brexit territory by the uh -huh. time he comes out. Now I think he cannot stay immune to the political climate of the times. Maybe it ought to have an element of politics in it. Do you think maybe a some? I, I, I mean, I think it's I think it's problematic, Magnus, because I think um, novelists um, are good at dealing with the fallout of things, but we can't really write about these things until they've happened. Mm. You need to know what it all means before you can start writing about it. Yeah. If you start projecting what it might mean, you tend to get it wrong, or you could get yeah. it wrong. So novelists, I mean, for example, in crime fiction, there's some fantastic books getting written right now about the troubles, yeah. because enough time has passed for us to know what it meant or to start to get an idea of what it meant, and some fantastic crime novels are coming out of Northern Ireland just now mm. about the, uh, the Troubles. Um, but that time had to pass. Yeah. I don't think you can write about Brexit until it's happened and until the dust has settled, and then we've got an idea of what it might all mean. Yeah. But I'm not a speculative writer. I'm not a science fiction writer, so I can't do that. It may be too late by then. Might be too late by then. Who knows? Maybe we'll all be living in... It'll be gravy and honey for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's one question up just somewhere up there. Just a quick one, Ian. I'm, I'm not sure if I can quite picture Ian Rankin does Brexit, but my question was going to be, you've dipped your toe into the world of um, non-fiction. So do you fancy returning to that at any point? Uh, non-fiction, I've not got any plans to do it. I mean, I've, I've got plans to do lots of things. There's a, there's, there's a mooted TV series again next year. There's a possible Rebus play, stage play. Um, that someone else is writing, thank God, not me. Um, I've just done a five-part book at bedtime that isn't a book for BBC Radio 4. Um, so it's a kind of original story set in Edinburgh in 1962. See, you can look back. You can't look forward, but you can look back. <laughs> set in Edinburgh in 1962, but the last hanging in Edinburgh didn't happen. That's fictional. Um, uh, you know, I've done a Christmas short story with Rebus for Country Life magazine. Country Life, you read that, right? Yeah. They've, um, <laughs> there's all kinds of things. That, but, this, but no uh, non-fiction in, in the future. This event has gone on far too long. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think you're beginning to lose your audience, so uh, I'm going to bring it to a rapid close. This sort of caricature of me is just disgraceful. Uh, so I urge you not to buy this book. And, uh, and although Ian is going to be signing it next door, I doubt if many of you will be going to sign it. Bad luck. Anyway. Magnus Linklater, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Ian Rankin. <laughs> More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest. The next book festival is on from the 11th to the 27th of August 2018.